Welcome to Life Solved, the research podcast from the University of Portsmouth, where we explore how studies here are changing our world today and in the future. I'm Robin Montague, and in this episode, we take a look at nature's role in cleaning our waters. There's no doubt that us humans need to do much more to clean up our own damage, but there are experts here and around the globe who are giving nature the opportunity to lend a helping hand as well. Joe Preston is a professor in marine ecology and evolution at the University of Portsmouth. It's not pie in the sky, it's not rocket science. And so now people are thinking, right, we need to start doing this and we need the money behind it. So people are more interested than ever because they're starting to realise what the natural world does for us. And Gordon Watson is professor of marine zoology at the university. It's fantastic from an economic point of view, fantastic from a social point of view and from a habitat environment point of view. As you'll hear from Joe and Gordon, investing in the well-being of our waters, from humble kelp to sophisticated oysters, pays off in more ways than you might even imagine. Joe first saw the damage that can be done in our waters while studying in Malaysia in the late 90s. So I was diving these coral reefs. They were quite pristine. Sometimes they had fishing nets all over them, ghost fishing nets. We went back and we started seeing patches of corals going from colourful organisms to this white bleached stone. And then over the three months I was there doing research, I saw these waves of bleaching just move across the reefs. And it was at that point... I mean, I loved the science, I love biology, I love nature, but at that point I decided I was going to spend the rest of my life working in marine conservation and looking at how my science can help inform policy and protection of the marine environment. Meanwhile, Gordon's early marine influences came from a place many miles away from the shoreline. I come from nowhere near the sea, so I come from a place called Bedford, which is about 80 miles from any coast in the middle of England. But what got me excited about marine biology was I've kept fish from a young age. So I kept fishing lots of different fish, freshwater fish, marine fish, and keeping those fish inspired me to sign up for marine biology. My mum always moans because when I went off to university, I kept the fish tanks and then she'd ring me up in the middle of term saying there's been a problem with said fish. What am I going to do about it? So I'd have to explain to her down the phone what we were supposed to do about these fish that had had a problem. You know, over the years of the research I've been doing, it's about yeah, making the place out there for my children and children's children a better place. And there's no question that's a commitment Joe and Gordon are delivering on to this day. In fact, back in the early days of Life Solved, we spoke to Joe about her work on restoring oyster beds. And the good news is there have been some huge developments to the story since then. Back then, most of our oysters were hanging in cages underneath marinas, pumping out, in the end, 9 billion larvae to the seabed. So which was really great. But what we wanted to do is put seabed populations back on the seabed. And since then, there's been a, a bio-law which closes areas to bottom-toed fishing, which means there's areas that are protected. And excitingly, since then, we've put in two seabed reefs, one in Langston Harbour, one in the Hamble River earlier this year. And excitingly, we've gone beyond just the oyster habitat. So last year, we found out we've been successful in a $5 million grant to restore oyster beds, seagrasses and salt marshes in the Solent, in a conjunction with seabed nesting sites, and to develop a co-design programme to relieve some of the pressures. So that's really exciting. We've gone to what I'm calling a seascape restoration approach. 
You'll hear lots of terms in this episode, like the Solent, which is a stretch of water just off the coast of Portsmouth and beyond, the Jurassic Coast, which is a name for the coastline along the south of England, known for its fossils and dinosaur history, along with references to the local River Hamble and Langston Harbour. But wherever you're listening to this podcast, the wider Oyster Project might be having an impact closer to you than you think. When we started in the Oyster Project, I'm involved in a whole community across Europe. There are three oyster restoration projects in Europe. Us in the Solent, the one in Essex and the one in Scotland, the Deep Project. As a result of this sort of networks we formed between 2017 and now, there are 26 oyster restoration projects across Europe going from sort of Sweden all the way down to the Mediterranean. So it's been a real expansion of this approach to actually actively help restore things that have been lost. And I think the success of that and the other partners working in salt marsh and seagrass, when we came together as a community, as a collaboration of 10 partners with all this expertise, we managed to secure this funding. The UK is quite unique when it comes to oyster farming, and not necessarily in a good way. Australia and America have banned what's called oyster dredging, a fishing method that effectively scoops sea life from the seabed by dragging a dredge. Gordon explains that there are other ways to develop a flourishing oyster community. The stuff that I've been doing is looking at restorative aquaculture, so how we can grow something that's commercially valuable like oysters or kelp, as well as making money out of that. You're also providing a series of services and supporting those other habitats as well. So if we can do those things alongside the restoration, we can make maximum use of those habitats and protect them for the value that they have intrinsically, but also for those commercially valuable species that come from them. It's aquaculture, but bivalves and kelp are probably the most sustainable things that you can culture in the sea. So if we can do that, they can provide lots of services plus the value of those products. We can get double bonuses in the sense of restoration plus the aquaculture. Which leads us to Gordon's research platform just off the coast of Portsmouth. I went out to see the project for myself. So just explain to us where we are right now and what it is we're doing here. Okay, so we're on the research platform at the University of Portsmouth where we're testing our kelp culture. We've been growing some sugar kelp on rope on the platform and then it's been there since March to see how it's getting on. And what's the overall point of this then? Are you hoping to encourage maybe some potential agricultural business into the area? Yeah, what we're hoping to do is two things really, to see if we can grow this commercially important species in places like Langston Harbour, but also to see how good it is at removing some of the nutrients in the water. So how good is it at absorbing the nutrients from the, from the water? So looking at natural solutions then to a problem that seems to just keep growing. Absolutely. A commercially viable and commercially valuable solution to the problem of water quality and excess nutrients in our water. Are you a fan of seaweed? Would you eat what you can see? I, I have eaten seaweed in the past and it's uh, it's not for everyone, but it's okay, yeah. <laughs> Probably won't try any today. No, maybe not today. No, we've still got the experiment to run, so don't eat it yet. And whilst there are a good few human hands on deck at the moment, in theory, once a project is fully established, people like Gordon can be much more hands-off. They are minimal input. The great thing is you place those baby kelp plants or the baby oysters or mussels out on your platform. You leave them to it because they soak up the nutrients or they filter feed the plankton from the water and then you go and harvest them. So apart from looking after them and making sure they're not being eaten by crabs and other things, it's really is minimal effort. And that's why they're such a positive in terms of restorative aquaculture. It's an amazing fact that just one oyster can filter 200 litres of water a day. In drinking terms, you can think of that as 16 pints an hour. Clean water is one benefit, 
But helping a variety of species thrive is another product of the oyster's massive thirst. Basically, they just sit there like a pump, absorbing all the sort of phytoplankton organic matter. And that sort of clarifies the water. So it reduces the amount of algae in the water. That increases the light penetration. The more light you get through to seagrass, which is a plant, the more it can photosynthesize, the more it can grow. It's also the fact that the juvenile fish and the sort of medium-sized fish and the teenagers and adults want to use these different habitats at different stages of their life history. They might want to feed in one, hide in another, breed in another, the young in another. So we need all these habitats to help support fish stocks, and that's really important. For now, the stretch of the coastal waters that Joe and Gordon are working in are well-protected, with rules including a no-take zone where no fishing, mining or drilling can take place. This is essential to the long-term plan. The Solent, brilliantly, is a really well-protected system and we have been working with the SIFCAs, which are the Inshore Fisheries Conservation Authorities, and all sorts of organisations across the Solent. And it was the SIFCA that put in this bylaw to have a ban on bottom-toed gear in areas of Langston Harbour, which enabled us to put the oyster reef there. And in the handball, the Port Authority has jurisdiction over what fishing occurs in that. So that's automatically then a no-take zone. So it's important that you restore in no-take zones. We hope eventually there'll be this fantastic tipping point reached when we have more oysters back in the Solent and the protected areas, the larvae, the oyster larvae, swim away and settle somewhere else. This spillover impact will help support a sustainable fisheries in other areas. Certainly in terms of Europe, it's one of the the biggest and the first seascape restoration projects. So it's really exciting and certainly is in the UK. Saying that, hot on our heels are a load of other projects happening around the UK, which is exactly what we need. And so I'm really excited about and we need to learn from each other. Here are some Life Solve podcast recommendations. Life's too short to fully examine it, but here are some podcasts to help you make some progress. The Partially Examined Life Philosophy podcast is a deep dive philosophy reading group that's been downloaded nearly 50 million times. Based on its success, host Mark Linsenmeyer started the Nakedly Examined Music podcast featuring career-spanning interviews with songwriters. You get to hear some great songs and learn about the creative decisions behind them. But maybe you're not that geeky about music or philosophy. Well, try Mark's Pretty Much Pop, a culture podcast, where diverse panels of guests examine what we watch or otherwise consume. Finally, for the philosophy beginner who's not adverse to some comedy thrown into the mix, try Philosophy versus Improv. Mark and Chicago improv comedy instructor Bill Arnett teach each other their respective arts and bring on professional philosophers and or performers to keep things lively. Find out about all of Mark's podcasts at partiallyexaminedlife.com or look up the Partially Examined Life, Nakedly Examined Music, Pretty Much Pop and Philosophy versus Improv wherever you listen. If you're enjoying Life Solved, the research podcast from the University of Portsmouth, then you might like one of our other episodes. From space, fabrics, films, environment, human biology, philosophy and much more, there's an episode for you. For some background on the episode you're listening to now, you can revisit episode 9 of Life Solved from way back in 2020, where Joe originally introduced us to the project. What we're doing really is we're sort of 
basically putting an oyster reef in vertically. So yeah. it's completely, it's sort of, it's, it's, it's an artificial construct, but we're, we're trying to recreate that yeah. oyster reef. And we didn't know whether they'd like being suspended, they're benthic organisms, yeah. but they do do it. They've done it with the fisheries. All the episodes from our first 11 series are available to stream for free wherever you listen to podcasts. The work going on to preserve and enhance sea life habitats comes at a time when much of the public are concerned about environmental issues. And Joe thinks that the interest wouldn't have been as strong a decade ago. I've been working in marine conservation for a long time and people have never been more aware as they see what's happening in the world around us. And we've got this dual climate crisis and we've got this huge planetary biodiversity loss. And the biodiversity loss is driven by often the removal of habitat. So if you think about the Sonnet Seascape project, we've lost 70% of all our salt marshes since the 1870s and UK-wide half of all our salt marsh. Seagrasses, we've lost between 44 and 92% of seagrass meadows across the UK in a similar period. We've lost over 95% of all our oysters across Europe. And so these habitats, so the salt marsh and the seagrass, they're plants, they photosynthesize just like a forest, they draw down carbon. So we've lost the ability of these huge swathes of the coastal habitats to draw down carbon. And now we're trying to minimize the carbon in the atmosphere, we want to put these back. Oysters, they're sort of the basis like coral reefs of biodiversity. So the things that grow in the oysters are lovely little bits of nibbly food for fish. And so oysters and seagrass beds provide a habitat that support fish stocks. And in fact, it's been estimated that the seagrass beds that used to exist around the UK that have now been lost would have supported 400 million more fish than we see in our waters now. So you get to see that because we lose this habitat, we lose the biodiversity, but we also lose the climate mitigating services they provide. And actually the latest IPCC climate report said that nature-based solutions like putting habitat back or improving, restoring it or improving its quality could reach 30% of the targets we need to mitigate climate change by the Paris targets of 1.5 in 2030. Like so many things in life, to put these projects firmly in place and go some way to help achieve the Paris targets, it takes money. Joe and I did some work a couple of years ago where we were looking at how valuable these habitats are to us as as a society. So we looked at how if we were to use catchment-sensitive farming techniques or build a new sewage treatment works, If we did that, instead of supporting those habitats, how much would it cost? And we calculated or estimated it would be about a billion pounds a year in terms of those services provided by those habitats present within the Solent. And those things, until recently, have gone unnoticed. They're not involved or part of the sort of economic assessment of things. They're not involved in business, in, in policy. And that's what's changed over the last few years. The valuation of those habitats in the Solent and beyond are now absolutely front and centre of the conversation. And that's where they should be. Because once you value something, then you can you put a price on it, then you've got more vested interest to protect it. So if you can don't have to spend a billion pounds on building new sewage treatment works, you can use the habitats that are already there and make sure that doing as good a job as they can, then you've saved an awful lot of money. It's a bit of a no-brainer, really. There's been lots of talk about oysters so far in this episode. But what seems like the more boring world of seagrass and kelp can make a lot of difference too. 
they're sort of really fat, powerful, what we call blue carbon habitats. So these are sort of nature's way of sucking down carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and either storing it in the sediment, in the seabed that seagrass is really, really good at doing or possibly exporting it to the deep sea, which we think the kelp does. And so this is a fantastic resource, but they're also really, really powerful as um, essential fish habitat. So both kelp and seagrass, they support huge fish populations. They're sort of nursery grounds and and feeding grounds, and they're really important for offshore fish populations. And the wonderful thing in the Sonnet Seascape project is we're working with Project Seagrass and the Hampshire and Isle of Wight Wildlife Trust to pioneer seagrass restoration sites all around the Solent and we've got a good sort of network research collaboration with the kelp project in Sussex Bay and so we're analysing the fish populations in the same way using environmental DNA and cool techniques like that because we lost 96% of all our kelp along the southeast in the last 40 years and again since there was a trawling ban which was a huge triumph off the Sussex coast then we're starting to see recovery. So kelp is one of those habitats, actually, it's a bit easier. If you leave it be and you stop trawling it, we think it will then naturally recover itself. So these are really important blue carbon habitats and we need to have that as part of our climate mitigation strategies. And they also are really good for coastal protection because they dissipate wave energy they sort of they can have this coastal protection function which is really important and this is sort of things we can use in aquaculture as well can't we Gordon? yes so a uh, kelp are, are grown commercially around the world millions of tons are grown and worth billions of dollars every year and those products can be used they can be eaten by humans they can be used in shampoos ice cream all sorts of different things and if we can culture some of that kelp we can provide some of those help provide the services for that kelp and add a valuable product to the system as well as supporting those habitats then again we're, we're adding to that value and providing those services and making that connection between those other habitats really strong As you've heard, not only can the likes of oysters and kelp clean water and soak up carbon, they can also help with food security. So with lots of potential and lots of work already going on, how is the UK placed to take advantage of all of this? The UK is sort of odd, really, in some senses, in that it's behind the curve for a lot of aquaculture. We do a great job for salmonid aquaculture, so salmon up in the coast of, west coast of Scotland. But for other things, we really, compared to Europe and compared to Asia and the Far East, we are not generating much at all in, when it comes to aquaculture. So that global food security, the services that they provide through that process, plus the valuable product is something we as a UK government could really invest in and then add to those services and make more of those coastal areas. And green jobs. You and, know, yeah, this is a, we need yeah. to do create this circular economy, yeah. sustainable business, sustainable finance that you know creates green, green or blue jobs. And as those traditional fisheries have fallen away because of overfishing and poor management, then if you can upskill those people back into aquaculture and other green jobs, as Joe says, then again, that's a sort of levelling up agenda around those poorer coastal communities. It's fantastic from the economic point of view, fantastic from a social point of view and from a habitat Mm. environment point of view. Joe is both realistic and optimistic. We're not going to get back to 1800s levels of habitats, but it's not rocket science. We do need to sort of upskill 
the community. I mean, you had some people that are able to do restorative agriculture or do oyster hatcheries. You know, we put people on the moon. We do huge offshore wind and oil industries. We have capability to do these things at scale. So it's actually completely feasible to restore at scale. We just need to upskill some people, get the right investment and look at it like you would a big industry like that and be ambitious in, in our approach. But we're not going to go back to the old days. That's why we say if you restore lots of habitats in the same place at the same time, you get this mosaic of habitats which do more than the sum of their parts. And on top of everything, Gordon thinks there'll be at least one more benefit to the projects he and Joe are involved in. Some of the work we're doing at the moment is about how you value those habitats in different ways. So not just a purely economic value from a fishery or from the remediation of nutrients, but the, the cultural value. So people visit places because of their, you know, they have a well-being connection to those coastal environments. So there is, it's hard to value, but there's a significant value to those habitats just from people experience them, utilising them, visiting them. And that is part of some of the projects we're doing at the moment. It's quite something to hear how kelp, oysters, seagrass and other sea life can not only play a part in cleaning our waters, but can also provide a sustainable food source and boost to the economy. It's often good in these Life Solved episodes to revisit a piece of research a few years down the line, as we've done this time. And three years on from our first conversation, the developments have been incredibly positive, with much more to come. We'd love you to be part of the discussion. Email us at lifesolved at port.ac.uk. That's lifesolved, one word, at port.ac.uk. Tell us what you think and make suggestions for future episodes of Life Solved. In the meantime, you can get news of the latest developments here at the university by going to our website, port.ac.uk. And we'd love if you clicked follow on your podcast app so you never miss an edition. We'd really appreciate it if you left a rating or review as well. It really helps us get these conversations into more ears around the globe. Next time, how batteries are leading the charge in sustainable energy. I mean, batteries have been around a while, but the challenge is making them small enough and energy dense enough so yeah there's i mean decades of like innovation and work behind making these lithium batteries small enough that they can fit in cars and energy dense enough that you can drive at least 100 miles or more bye for now